I'm Michael Hainsworth. The cost of being Canadian continues to climb. The consumer price index rose 6.8% year-over-year in April to a new 31-year high, driven by grocery bills and the cost to keep a roof over our heads. Food prices accelerated over the month before to a 9.7% annual rate. We haven't seen that since September of 1981. Consumers paid more for nearly everything at the grocery store. The last time shelter costs rose this fast, Irene Cara's flash dance was burning up the billboard charts in 1983. The Bank of Canada has done something it rarely does, warn us that large interest rate increases are in the cards. The Institute sat down with former Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos and David Dodge to discuss the impact on Canada's economy. And while the 1980s fashions are back in style today, Dodge describes today's economy as more likely to be wearing bell-bottoms and platform shoes. In many ways, much like the 70s, but different. And that is that, that we have supply constraints that are the real problem out there that we're trying to cope with. And we don't really understand how those are going to evolve over time. So unlike when basically you and I were governor, we were dealing with a degree of demand deficiency uh, in the world. Today, we're talking about a supply problem. And that's what uh, our current colleagues have to deal with. Yeah, it's the supply shock, which is the main, uh, the main issue for people. Uh, so it's uh, the kind of situation that almost always gives rise to a stagflationary kind of characteristic where the economy will slow at the same time as inflation picks up. But underneath that, what we need to be concerned about is not the exogenous price increases from oil and all that. That'll wash through the system. But does domestic homegrown inflation pick up? Uh, because of excess demand. And that's, of course, the huge uncertainty that we face. The economy will slow because of the oil shock. It'll slow because interest rates are coming up to normal. Uh, will it be enough? No one actually knows. Is this the kind of environment where you kind of wish you were back in the trenches? No. No, you don't, you don't have anything to do with this. Uh, not really. You handed over the keys just as it was starting up. Well, you know, we got the, at least the crisis was over. Uh, when I handed over the keys, it was turning to economics from the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, there are days when you think, oh, boy, I wish I was there, but they're few and far between. So you're happy in not-so-retirement? <laughs> Happy, got lots of variety, and enjoying the enjoying the life. Yes. Bullet dodged, as far as you're concerned, uh, after leaving in 2020. You don't want back in, into that game or so. But the the BOC has provided a guidance about the path of interest rate increases. Will telling us rates are going significantly higher have the desired cooling effect, despite the stimulus that one percent is currently providing? This is a very uncertain world out there. It's certain uncertain because of exogenous shocks. And uncertain because, as Steve just said, uh, we're not quite sure how much of this is getting built into the domestic economy. So I think it's a very difficult situation for the bank to handle. It's difficult for the fiscal authorities. And the only people that really have big levers, in fact, are those people that deal with policies that affect the structure of the economy, whether that's foreign policy, whether that's military, uh, whether that is 
the regulation uh, of industries and so on. That that will have a big effect over time. So this is more of a fiscal policy issue than a monetary policy issue. Well, I would say it, it, we we're dealing with a world economy, the structure of which is changing. In some ways, I think we can surmise what you've called tech, the big, long tectonic shifts, but in other ways, in uh, very uncertain, uh, very uncertain sorts of developments. When you think about pre-announcing essentially what's going to happen, uh, the question is, does that cause people to slow down or does it actually cause them to speed up? If you've got a plan over the next 12, 18 months to buy a house, chances are you're going to try to speed that plan up uh, to avoid uh, higher interest rates. But that's a fairly tactile thing that's, that's relatively short-lived. Uh, the most important issue is how much does spending power get constrained as people renew their mortgages at higher interest rates? And the thing is, it's a mixed bag because some people are going to renew mortgages at lower rates than they took out five years ago. So it actually takes quite a while to roll through the system. Uh, but I do note that uh, some markets, housing is already kind of checked up. It's kind of taken a little bit of the of the heat out, and that's the main channel by which we would slow the economy. But I think the most important thing here is that the economy will slow, right? It's going to slow because of the oil price shock, the supply shocks themselves. Uh, in the past, we'd say it might speed up, but it's not likely to promote a big surge in investment in the oil sector as it has in the past, given the uncertainties about the longer-term future. So all things considered, it's, as David says, extremely uncertain, therefore an intensely data-driven process of getting from here to wherever we're going. What are the key data points you're keeping an eye on? Well, for me, it'll be the labor market, because that's where the tightness is so evident. Uh, you know, like 40 or 50-year low in unemployment, still a million jobs almost uh, vacant. Uh, until the job vacancies come down to a more normal level, we'll know there's excess demand in the labor market. And that's where homegrown inflation is more likely to emerge, and especially fueled by those exogenous price increases that make, make people think we're in a higher inflation setting. That main stuff should be temporary, of course. Uh, but we, we, well, if, if at a minimum we get the vacancies down through immigration, through the temporary foreign worker program, those things are going to help the daycare program. All those things are going to boost labor supply and hopefully take some of that heat away so interest rates don't have to do such a big job. I guess, David, back to your point earlier about this not being like the 70s. In the 70s, we had a very different labor market with the inflationary environment they were dealing with then. We had a different structure in that labor market, though, as well. Uh, very much. We had lots of young workers without all that much experience. And so it, it was a different problem. And... And, and we had much stronger union organizations. There was more, um, there was more resistance, let me put it that way, uh, directly to, uh, to price increases, by, uh, resistance by labor to try recapture those price increases. Um, and their ability to, to enforce that. I mean, that, that was a problem. But fundamentally, fundamentally, in the late 60s uh, and into the early 70s, in North America, 
we were running excess demand. We were trying to do a lot of things at once. The Americans were fighting a war in Vietnam. Mr. Johnson was running his Great Society program. Um, Mr. Pearson and then Mr. Trudeau uh, greatly expanded uh, what governments were doing in this country. And so there really was a lot of demand being created out there at that point, point in time. And we really, but the unemployment rate kept going up because of this massive growth in the labor force uh, that was going on. And what we did at the time, and I remember very well being there at Finance all through this, is we kept saying, we've got to get that unemployment rate down. And so there was a tendency to push out more demand in the system. And then we had an exogenous shock in 73 uh, with the oil price. So, you know, it's different. The setup of how we got to where we are today is different. Uh, but whenever you have excess demand in the economy, then you do have to expect prices to move up. That's what we're seeing. National Bank of Canada Chief Economist Stefan Marion says the BOC has been too permissive in allowing inflationary pressures to run out of control. What are the risks that inflation expectations become unanchored, leading to predictions of runaway inflation and cycle of wage price hikes that keep inflation from returning to normal levels. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, <laughs> obviously, those risks are real. Uh, it's a very abstract uh, question, as I alluded before. It's highly data dependent. Uh, we look back and, and restore the context to the question. Uh, we begin this episode, you know, two years ago with this gigantic crater opening up in the economy and the economists were screaming that this was going to be the worst recession since the Great Depression. Now that's a comparison that conjures up some images. Uh, where we stand today is an economy with the lowest unemployment rate on record uh, and maybe an upside risk on inflation long term. That's not a bad outcome compared to the second Great Depression. So as I like to say on Star Trek, you know, you never see Picard and Geordi arguing about how many photon torpedoes to use. They just load photon torpedoes and, and unleash the photon torpedoes and they get the job done. And I think if we, uh, we can just remind ourselves that we did manage to avoid the Second Great Depression, that helps put that into context. So in the end, I think it's possible that inflation will end up as the dust settles being a little higher than we would like. But then, it's, of course, we have the tools, you know, opportunistically to get that down through time. Uh, and I don't think the numbers we're seeing right now are representative of where we're headed because of those exogenous price increases. We'll wash through the system. Uh, if oil prices stay at $110 or $120, well, 12 months later, they stop contributing to inflation, right? It's done. After that, uh, all that's left is how are the second order effects being managed? And that's going to be, of course, a job to do and an uncertain job, but a job that we know how to handle. Was that the right answer? Did you get it right? Yeah, I hope we can handle it. Um, I, I hope we can handle it because inevitably there'll be a great desire to catch up the four or five points that people have lost in this period when prices rose four or five points higher than they expected. 
Um, and, and that is going to be the, the management issue, if you will. And I mean, we just saw Royal Bank move to say, look, we have to deal with this. We're raising the salaries of everybody by 3%. Now, what this may simply do is move us to a new higher level of prices, not to uh, a higher level of inflation. That's what that's what we would hope. That's what needs to be managed. But that is not not, not so easy to manage. Um, and uh, so we we will see. I think this is a difficult job that that everybody has today. We saw the first 50 basis point hike in almost 22 years, but some are saying we need to do another 100 all at once. What would that do to the system? We don't know precisely what a neutral rate is, but say it's somewhere between 2 and 3% for our central bank and for, for the Federal Reserve. Um, it would seem that reasonably sensible to get up to that neutral rate pretty quickly. And then, uh, then I think the words that every central banker should use is our moves from there are going to be data dependent, uh, is, is what, what we should say. Uh, so moving quickly, uh, moving quickly to get to say two and a half percent about, uh, would seem to be really quite sensible, but not giving the impression that they're going to have to keep, keep going and keep going. I think that that would be a problem. Well, I'd agree, uh, except for a couple of caveats. One being that the rise in commodity prices and food price, food prices across the board are sucking income out of everybody's pockets. So they have less money for all the other sectors of the economy. So there will be a slowdown in the domestic economy as a result of that, which is really hard to predict measure at this point. Uh, but that's the sort of thing that will cool off things without interest rate increases. So it can replace one or two of the interest rate increases that you're talking about. That's So I, I think we have to be data dependent on the way to neutral for that reason. And because also there's a lot more household debt out there and we're not 100% sure how much of an impact. What's the, if you like, the sensitivity of the economy, both corporately and household side is perhaps higher to a given change in interest rates than it was before. Uh, so that just makes more uncertainty to, around what that neutral rate might be. It's like landing on landing a plane in the fog, you know when you hit the runway that you're there. But that, right up until that moment, you're still trying to be data dependent. You're not 100% sure how far away you are from the pavement. And I think we have to allow for that bit of flexibility uh, in the story. Uh, but I, I agree with the basic premise. But, but in terms of speed, you know, gosh, the bond markets have basically gone all the way there, yeah. right? And so the rates that people are paying, you know, are almost there. You know, it's just the very overnight rate. By Believe me, almost nobody pays the overnight rate. So I think in the transmission mechanism, most of the work has been done uh, of getting close to neutral at least. And from here, well, we need to be just kind of the, the central banks, I'm sure, will just continue to validate what markets are telling them. And, of course, they're reading the tea leaves themselves. That's a really important function. Right now, markets think that there'll be an overshoot and that there's probably going to be a recession as a result. But that's not a foregone conclusion. I, I think, actually, markets have overdone it. One thing I think they're missing, and I'll see what David thinks of this. There's a lot of people out there that think that QE contributed to the inflation issue. 
No, I don't subscribe to that. You know, it was basically uh, filling a need at the time. Uh, but to the extent that there are people whose expectations are being driven by the, the past use of QE, the use of QT, which is going to come along at the same time, will help alleviate those concerns. And so we can have an expectations mechanism that's quite independent of what the economic cycle is doing. I don't know how big that would be. I can't guess. But to the extent that people are all talking about it, those people at least are going to be a bit relieved to see QT happening. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. There's one other thing that, that I think is important to remember. We've had a big rise in prices, but we produce a lot of the stuff uh, of which for which the price has risen. So the, the rise in prices also is responsible for some increase in Canadian income uh, at the same time. Outside of oil, what would you be talking about? Minerals, food. Fertilizer. Fertilizer. Okay. Yeah. 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 So the impact of these price rises of primary commodities um, on Canada is quite different than it is in Europe, uh, for example. And it's hard to gauge how much of that additional income that we're getting is actually going to flow back, right, because it's not... It's not going to the ordinary consumer. We're not seeing wage inflation because well, of it? No. I mean, we should, some will end up there simply because we need more miners, right? Uh, some will end up there. Hopefully, some of it's going to end up in higher levels of investment than we would otherwise have. Although, given the uncertainty of those prices in the future, it's not going to be the same as it was say, from um, up until 2015, That's right. when price rises generated a lot of, a lot of additional investment. But it will, it will generate some, uh, certainly. So these are, these are things that are, uh, are difficult, uh, difficult to judge. You can't entirely rely on models that are calibrated uh, over history in doing that. Um, but uh, what I would say is I think the folks at our central bank and indeed the folks that are working away at the Fed understand this. They're grappling with it because it is just difficult to grapple with. But it's not as if, uh, as if somehow, you know, this is all... Uh, a mystery that people don't don't understand. Conference Board of Canada is worried about stagflation. Are you? Yeah, well, as I said before, stagflation is actually, to be honest, it's the preferred outcome uh, as we go deal with a shock that's of the sort, the commodity price shock. Inflation, as we measure it, has to go up. We hope that it doesn't find its way through our system to become permanently higher inflation. Therefore, what you get is this mixture of higher inflation and a moderate slowdown in the economy. That combination is usually thought of as or referred to as stagflation. Uh, it's not the kind of uh, roaring stagflation like we had in the 70s. It's sort of like a technical 
stagflation in the same sense as you might say a technical recession. Right. I, I don't think uh, we have to have it for a long time, but it's but if but imagine if if instead you you raise interest rates really fast to prevent any inflation from affecting the Canadian economy. Well, you'd be forcing a disinflation shock through the rest of the economy, probably with a, a major slowdown or even a recession. Well, that would be nonsense, right? So that's why I'm saying that the optimal response to this is in the in-between space, which which by that measure would be called stagflation as it's happening. Okay, so if we have stagflation, and that is the better case scenario, yes. for how long do we experience that stagflation? Can I just be careful of those words, stagflation? Oh, exactly. Okay. That's yeah. said technical stagflation, yeah, You have to be very careful. Because our problem in the 70s is that we had a long period. We had a long period leading up to right through the 60s when, indeed, people were seeing prices rise year after year. And, and the whole system was kind of built into deal with rising prices in some cases by indexing wages and others by COLA contracts and labor, uh, in, in labor agreements. It, we, we had one that was very sensitive, uh, in a sense, uh, to inflation in terms of moving up the costs, business costs, in a sense, and hence contributing to further inflation. That is not the starting point this time, right? That is not the starting point this time. So yes, I think there's there's a, a danger that we will have inflation uh, uh, on an ongoing basis, a bit above uh, perhaps the two percent target that we had been used to. I think, but I I think we're not in the same position in the '70s as we were in the '70s when, as you will recall in both the United States and in Canada, we stepped in, government stepped in and provided quantitative controls uh, on wages and prices uh, for quite a period of time. The problem was we continued to have excess demand over that period and finally everybody gave up and said, no, we're going to have to accept a big recession um, when Mr. Volcker and Mr. Bowie went at it and they managed to solve the problem, but it was not without pain. We've sort of indirectly been talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine by way of talking about energy prices and its impact on inflation. What, though, of the knock-on effects beyond just the rising price of gasoline, if, if this is a protracted conflict, what are the implications for Canada? Uh, I'm not sure I can answer that. But one thing that may well be the case is that Governments, both in Canada and the United States, want to spend a lot more on military procurement of one sort or another, which will contribute to to demand from from the government side. Uh, that that is that is certainly a possibility. But the second thing, and I think I think is really unfortunate, is that we live in a world that is deglobalizing. It that started in in the late uh, 2016, 17, 18, and so on, it has had a tremendous impact, uh, further impact uh, with this uh, Ukraine situation. Um, and so 
that deglobalization is a recipe for prices to go up because we don't produce goods and services in the most efficient way. And so that, to me, is a very worrying underlying factor. Whereas when I was governor, and when most of the time you were governor, uh, not all but most, um, uh, we had a tailwind coming from improved globalization, which was tending to hold down prices. So if I had to look at one factor, one external factor, uh, that I really worry about. It is that we will deglobalize fairly rapidly, and that, that really means uh, an increase in the cost of production of goods and services. Which, by the way, is also a stagflationary shock to the global exactly. economy because we'll be losing, you know, income standard. Basically, we'll be losing income through that process, higher cost of living, and no ability to catch up to it. So probably a rising unemployment rate in that context until we fully adjust, which being a structural adjustment could be a really long time. And the steady state by most models would be one with a lower standard of living for everybody. Exactly. So that's, uh, you know, that, that is the economics lens on this. Geopolitical isolationism like if it results in deglobalization and it can it already has with the china front i think a lot of the companies that are deglobalizing are actually just de-risking their supply chains by spreading their supply chains into other markets so i'm hopeful that trend can continue and that we keep that sense of uh progress that we've made through trade um but the, the, all it takes is a little more politics to make that not the avenue uh, and so, uh, you know, politicians, uh, they often feel like they're doing things with the best intention, but don't realize perhaps that they're clipping everybody's standard of living. And some of the policies that Donald Trump put in place during his, his tenure were clearly adding costs onto the U.S. household sector uh, for no compensation at all. I mean, uh, really not really creating more jobs domestically. So... We hope that we hope that we're more enlightened today than we were uh, in the last big cycles, but uh, I'm not 100% confident that we are. Therefore, those are the kinds of risks that keep explaining and uh, make sure people understand. It feels a bit like two steps forward, one step back when addressing inflation. If we are dealing with a deglobalization and an increase in the cost of doing business, yeah. that's just going to reinflate a lot of those prices we've been trying to push back. Yeah, but again, it should, you know, if we look at the history of the last, say, 30 years, thereabouts, well, after China joined WTO, you know, we may be looking at half a point to a percentage point of disinflation tailwind, as you would call it, David, maybe at most like that. Uh, that's sort of in the similar magnitude that we should get from the fourth industrial revolution, right? Which, uh, you know, adding productivity, let's say half to a single point per year to the major economies. There's every reason to expect that to still happen. And so think of them in the similar sense. I can't quantify either of them, but they're, but they're in similar ballparks. We're not talking about adding five points onto inflation. We're talking about, you know, sequentially, firms rejigging their supply chains in ways that are less risky and it costing a little bit more, right? It's kind of like buying insurance to, to make sure your supply chains still work. Stephen Polos is a former Bank of Canada governor and special advisor at Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt. 
David Dodge is also a former BOC governor and senior business advisor to Bennett Jones. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, an in-person event. We'll discuss the economic growth plan for Canada at the National Club with former Finance Minister Bill Morneau, Wednesday, June 1st. And on the 7th, the 2022 Scholars Webinar Series with Carmen Reinhardt, Senior VP and Chief Economist at the World Bank. And Mino Zambanikis, Professor of the International Finance System at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.